In this episode, we wade out there with Trevor Smith from State College, Pennsylvania. Trevor has been fly fishing in Pennsylvania since he was very young. His search for versatility on the river brought him to fly fishing with a hybrid system called the monorig. We discuss the importance of versatility on a trout stream, dry fly fishing with the monorig, and Trevor shares some wonderful insights and stories about the mentors and his own fly fishing journey. Welcome to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Shemchuk. At Wade Out There, we believe fly fishing is special, but not elite, and that anyone can become a great fly fisher if they are willing to go, learn, and teach. Join me as I talk with other fly fishermen and women about their unique journeys into fly fishing, the rivers they fish, and the tactics and philosophies they practice. For those who can never leave the river in their hearts, this podcast is dedicated to helping you make the memories that keep us all coming back to wait out there. Welcome, Trevor. Thanks for being on the Wait Out There podcast. Happy to be here. I'm excited to talk to you again. Last time I talked to you, I was in person. Yeah, it was. That wasn't too long ago. I know. And uh, one of the reasons I'm pumped to talk to you is because I feel like the last time uh, I just feel like I was left wanting the last time because <laughs> I was telling you a story about how I forgot my rod going to the river uh, on the, my uh, first day fly fishing yeah, in Pennsylvania. Brutal. So that was, that was embarrassing. Oh, yeah. Everybody's done it, though. Rod or, or waders or boots or something. Something essential. Yeah. Somebody needs to write a blog post about it. I've got one in the works, I think. But, That's uh, right. And then also, thanks for buying my, my beers, man. It yeah. was a surprise, and I yeah. appreciate it. And I well, want to hey, say thank you again. like to show some hospitality when you come our way. I'm excited to ask you all the questions that I accumulated when I was out there fishing Pennsylvania. Yeah. Now you've been here, and you've kind of gotten yeah. a, a first-person view on what it's like. Well, I love it. I think it's a beautiful state and beautiful streams. And like I said, I'm pumped to talk to you about it. Have you been fly fishing Pennsylvania your whole life? I have, yeah. I grew up up in Warren, Pennsylvania, which is up in the north northwest kind of corner up by Erie. And I grew up learning to fly fish at a pretty young age. Um, I grew up actually with my backyard, like right against the Allegheny River. And so um, gear fishing was pretty natural and easy to do as a kid. But there was an old, uh, an old man that went to our church back there in Warren named Clarence Baldwin, who had wore a fedora and a three-piece suit most Sundays. And he would have me stand in his yard and hold a Bible under my arm and cast and work on my form in his yard as I cast like a puff of cotton into his fedora. Are you serious? Is this a true story? Yeah, it is a true story. Oh man, that's awesome. Sounds kind of made up, but it is true. Um, Well, that was what I wanted to ask you. I was going to ask you, do you have any fly fishing mentors or anybody that was impactful in your life? But sounds like that's super impactful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Clarence was was the very first um, kind of influence. And my uncle Jack is kind of right there alongside that. He was, he he lived in Lancaster for the good part of my younger years. And so we'd see him at every family get together, Christmas, Thanksgiving, etc. And he loved to fly fish and fished kind of Pennsylvania uh, throughout and also fished out West quite a bit. But every time we would go to a family reunion, he'd always bring a little box of flies that he'd tied for me. And so, and then we'd stand in the yard and cast or, or he'd take me fishing. 
it was just always something I looked forward to at those family get togethers. And so, wow, man, that that's, that's deep. Yeah. That's way really, way really down really in your DNA. It, it really is. And he moved out to Montana when I was 16, maybe even younger. And so I fished out there with him, um, for a week, which was also a very special, special time yeah. in my life. I was out there for other reasons actually, but spent a week with him and he and I, I actually flew into Bozeman and then we fished across, um, Montana as I, I had to end up in Jackson hole. Um, I had a, um, sort of like a wildlife habitat contest that I used to be part of. It's pretty nerdy. Um, but anyway, <laughs> there was a competition <laughs> in Jackson hole. Um, and, and he got me there from Bozeman and we just fished the way out. He had one of those old VW, uh, vans that had a tent on top. So we just <laughs> camped as we went across Montana and fished, uh, all the rivers that he knew and loved. And that, that's like, you know, definitely one of those experiences that I'll never forget. That's awesome, man. I wasn't yeah. expecting that story, but that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. It was awesome. Is there anything that you remember that, that either of these men taught you that you, you still think about often in fly fishing? It's a good question. I think from Clarence, I learned a lot of just that respect. He, he had a ton of respect for the sport. He was probably what we'd all consider like a, an elitist in many ways, a dry fly first fisherman and really cared a lot about just beautiful loops and casting. And, and so his teaching of me was very much about, you know, respecting the sport and casting well. And it was all, it was being a gentleman, right? Being a gentleman fly fisherman. That's why you fly fished. So th- I took that away from him and, you know, I'm, I don't fall into that mold of, of dry fly first kind of uh, purist, but I certainly, I think I've retained an element of respect for the sport that came from him. Um, and then my uncle Jack, he was just a, an incredibly warm and personable and really caring individual that just taught me kind of the camaraderie of the sport, you know, and just sort of enjoying the pursuit of something together, enjoying nature together and just kind of the, the softer sides to, to fly fishing and the reasons why I think a lot of us stay in it. Yeah. Does that feel good to pass that kind of thing on to your kids too? Cause I know you are taking them on the water here and there. Yeah, right? that's huge. That's absolutely huge. Um, I've named my youngest son is Jack. And so in my, in my uncle's honor, um, and I love taking my kids out and certainly I'm hopeful that they, um, they already do to some extent, but I'm hopeful that their kind of enjoyment of that sport grows. And, you know, it's always hard to, you want to walk that balance pretty carefully, not to overdo it and, and super saturate them at such a young age. Cause fly fishing can be a little bit complex and intense. Um, but so I try to, I try to keep it lighthearted and, um, also take them just bobber fishing as much as I can. Yeah. I think that's wise. Just get them on the <laughs> river. Exactly. <laughs> Let them taste some success first. Yeah. Let them tell me when they want to learn something. Yeah, exactly. The reason I asked too is because you strike me as somebody who obviously is deeply connected to fly fishing from an early age. You've continued that throughout your life and now you have family and things. And I know for me, especially it's tough sometimes to get away to the river. And we talked a little bit even before the show about the 
you know, blessing, I guess, of being yeah. able to be on the river or be so close to the river. And you certainly are. Is there yeah. other things that you've done in your life or seasons in your life where that wasn't the case? And yeah, how have you sure. dealt with those times? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, I was able to fish pretty frequently up until I was, I would say probably high school, I started to get, uh, more consumed with academics and, um, found less and sports too. I always had a, I, I ran track and I played football and having a fall and a spring sport always kept me busy after school uh, during those years as well. Um, and then right at, you know, I went into, I went to college at Penn state in a pre-med track and, um, that proved to be a fairly rigorous track and, um, followed that with med school and then residency. And as part of that whole process, I joined the air force uh, on scholarship. And so that added even more, um, time and, and commitment to that whole thing. So there was a, there was a pretty long stretch. I would say age, you know, 16, 17, up until I was probably in my mid twenties that it was really tough to get out. Um, and a lot of that time in med school, you know, med school was in Philadelphia and then residency and time in the air force. I spent seven years out in St. Louis. So that wasn't exactly a, an easily, it, it wasn't an area that was easy to get out fly fishing for trout. Um, so yeah, I to, left Missouri. Right, I was yeah. in Kansas city. <laughs> You know, it's not impossible, but it's no. not, uh, it's not easy. Yeah. And so when my time breaks like yours often were an hour or two long or, you know, a few hours, it just wasn't, wasn't something that I could do. So I still would gear fish occasionally and fish for bass because there were some ponds and lakes that you could do that. But my fly fishing really took a back seat, um, through those years. And I feel like my life in many ways took a back, you know, a lot of my hobbies took a back seat during those years. And, and I, while I wish I would have been able to fish through them, it sort of feels like a blur too. You know, those years sort of compress into one period of time that I can, I'm not, I'm just grateful for what I have now, you know, in contrast to that. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And I forgot that you're in the Air Force, man. Yeah. I forgot that we oh, have yeah. that kind of common thing. For sure. Um, yeah. I, I say often on the show, I bring up the fact that, you know, while I was in the Air Force, I didn't go that much and there was all these opportunities and stuff. And I think that sometimes I overestimate in hindsight what was possible yeah. because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was opportunities for sure. But like you said, it was a blur and yeah. there, it was a lot of work and a lot of, a lot of time. And uh, It really is. And I feel like in the military, you're so rarely are you strings unattached free, you know, like even when you're on and I, you know, I know you flew and I, I was a physician in the military, but you know, like the, I know that even when I was off, I was on, you know? And so I couldn't be without cell signal. I couldn't be too remote and not able to get back. Cause you just never knew when something was going to happen and sort of having that hang over your head. It doesn't yeah. get hard to, to get out when, it, when getting out means being remote or being far away from your base. Right, which is part of the reasons we go fly fishing. Exactly. Just con disconnect, be right. present in the moment, and yeah. not doing other things. Exactly. I guess the last thing I'll say about that is kind of, it's frustrating. It was frustrating a little bit when I was going through that time. Um, when I when I would think about that, which wasn't very often. It wasn't like I woke up every day like, oh man, I wish I could go fly fishing. But 
I wondered if I would be able to get back to that. And uh, yeah. now that I'm more immersed in fly fishing, I realize that it's okay that like we said in the beginning, like seasons and there's yeah. seasons when it's more available and when it's not. And like you said, it's nice to be able to look back on it, you know? It is. Yeah. I think it's the beauty of the outdoors sports is that they're kind of there for you in whatever capacity you're able to enjoy them. And I completely agree with you. I, I remember, I remember feeling like my life was a little out of balance without the ability to engage more in the outdoors. And I, I bow hunted a little bit out in Missouri and that yeah. certainly, that, that was helpful because that gave me some time outdoors. But I do think, you know, while I love, I love hunting for its own reasons and I love fly fishing for its own reasons, but they are different. They are a little bit different. Um, even just in the effect they have on me. Um, they're complementary but different. I guess I, I think also for me, I don't know if I appreciate it quite as much as if I hadn't had that time. I really, really appreciate my time on the water now that might not have had as much appreciation if I was doing it all the time. You never know. You never know. But yeah, for me, I, I think. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, yeah, I a hundred percent think that, that we can appreciate and, and, you know, we remember a time maybe when we couldn't have it. So I think yeah. we'll always appreciate that. Yeah. So then our kids are going to grow up. not have, right, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not, like, well, I just go with pop on the weekend for right. a couple of hours and it's no big deal. It's easy. Let's talk about Pennsylvania. Let's do it. Let's talk about why is that fishery special to you? And we'll talk broadly about Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, but I know it's your home water and mm -hmm. I mean, some of those stories already are cluing me in, but yeah. is there anything else that you particularly enjoy about Pennsylvania or why, let me put it this way. Does moving to Montana like Jack ever cross your mind? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm deeply rooted kind of with my family. And so I think moving to Montana for me would be a difficult thing, especially at the age of my kids, you know, because we, not only depend on, but we also just really value our parents' involvement in their lives and we see the benefit of that. And so there's there's no part of me at this stage in life that would want to move out there. But, you know, the explorer in me and the, you know, discoverer and the fly fisherman and all those things, yeah, I, certainly I see. Well, that's what I meant, like yeah, fly fishing yeah. wise. <laughs> I mean, what is, is there something that pulls you back to Pennsylvania in your fly fishing kind of life? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, outside of the fact that this is where I grew up, I'm not sure that I could answer that well. But having grown up in Pennsylvania and in a fairly remote part of Pennsylvania where I grew up, it, it was very small towns and um, very big woods. And so there were a lot of just mountain streams and um, native brook trout streams were what Clarence and I would fish, um, and what I sort of learned on. And so that was in contrast to the gear fishing that I was doing in the big river systems. And I know people fish for trout up on the Allegheny river, but that's not something that I got into, uh, much at the time. So I, you know, what I fell in love with about fly fishing at that age was a very wilderness type experience. And I think that's pretty available in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, in many, many locations and, um, the central part of the state, um, you know, we're blessed with the geological features that sort of feed limestone into the streams and create fertile waterways and ones that support, um, fish all year long. Right. You know, they, yeah. they have stable temperatures and they have a lot of food 
And one thing that I've, I think I've grown to appreciate more as I've gotten older in the sport and read more in the sport in terms of what's out there as far as books and literature is it's just amazing how many times you, you look up the author and you're like, Oh, grew up in Pennsylvania. Interesting. <laughs> grew up in Pennsylvania. And there's something about, I think part of it's being in the Northeast. That's a pretty, you know, it's an academically kind of driven like part of the country. But I also think that because our fish have such available food sources, they can afford to be really picky. And because of that, it sort of challenges the angler to be constantly trying to stay a step ahead of the fish or at least cue in or clue into what's going on in the water at that moment and and how can you use all your available data to sort of figure out what the fish are eating and and catch more fish because of it so i think it, it pennsylvania trains good fly fishermen <laughs> <laughs> it's a self-serving comment <laughs> that makes sense would you say there was any part in your fly fishing life where there was a light bulb moment or a breakthrough where you were able to kind of handle some of those picky trout in a different way I think for me, a lot of times as I, as I grew up fly fishing and, and sort of, um, I think there was always some tension or some struggle between meeting the fish on their own terms and having gear that sort of supported doing that and, or even having an approach that supported doing that. And so as I got into fishing a mono rig and fishing, um, a more, what I would consider a more versatile system in fly fishing, to me, that was a very much a, it was very much a light bulb moment because it finally allowed me to, to kind of, to the best of my ability with a one rod, one system approach, meet the trout on their terms. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Uh, well, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the different ways that you do that, but sure. versatility, mm-hmm. how do you break that? system down into being versatile because i think of it okay tight lining yep and to me tight lining is you know and we're getting ahead of ourselves but that's fine i I wanted to talk about this anyway but yeah you know tight lining is nymphing and in my brain right but it's but it's not you just explained to me that it's Mm -hmm. it's it was this transition because of the versatility yeah so if it's if it's versatile it can't just be tight lining nymphing Yeah, that's a that's really good point. What else is it, or how else do you use it in a versatile way? I think that the big distinction for me between sort of the Euro nymphing, um, really ultralight leader approach to tightline nymphing, and what I would consider more of like a mono rig system, is that the mono rig is designed around a heavier butt section. It doesn't have to be fished that way, but it's true versatility comes out of retaining some power and some weight and some stiffness in your butt section. And so whether that be 20 pound maxima, whether it be, um, OPST 30 pound, whether, you know, you choose some heavier butt material that's going to be a good deal lighter, at least half or more lighter than a traditional fly line. And yet still has enough weight and rigidity to cast a fly um, and not just lob a fly. And and you sort of begin to edge towards that uh, line of, of getting the best of both worlds where you can, if you want, 
hold line off the water because you have very little sag. But if you lay your line on the water in a dry fly type approach, you also get a lot less drag on your line from the current as well. And so it doesn't limit you to just nymphing. It allows you to fish streamers, nymphs, dry flies, and within a range, right? And um, there are limitations still, but but it does allow you to sort of take every single fly that you currently have in your box or in your arsenal and say you can fish that on the mono rig. Right. With more, I guess, um, you can optimize it, I mm-hmm. guess, in yeah. a way that maybe you couldn't in, in other Absolutely. ways. It's not like the perfect for each scenario, but it's, I, this is, these are my words now, sure. but I, sure. it's not perfect for every scenario, but it's a little bit better in each, I guess. Yeah. I think that there is a perfect within each style or within each, um, approach. I think there is a perfect that can be attained, but it, it but it does, ha- it does happen within certain limitations. So I yeah. do think that presenting a dry fly with the mono rig is a more perfect way to present a dry fly, but within a perimeter of 20 to 30 feet, depending on your casting ability, you know? And so that's a limitation. And if you're fishing big water, you're not casting that dry fly 60 feet. (laughs) And that's a, (laughs) it's a big limitation, but you know, in Pennsylvania, there are few waterways where we are forced to do that. And so, um, we're, we're often fishing smaller water where we really value the tact, the tactical approach over the distance, um, of a cast. Do you think that I want to ask you more about dry flies, but Mm -hmm. do you think that there is differences in the way that people build their, uh, leaders because of the differences in the way that they cast or their fishing styles? Or do you think that why that's people are so kind of, I don't know if picky is the right word, but Mm -hmm. everybody's got, it just seems like everybody that's into this has got their own little tweak on how they like to make that leader. It's not, it's usually a heavier butt section, right? But it's always different. And I wonder if that's because they've experimented enough to find with their cast, this works better for them. I think that's, yeah, you nailed it. I mean, I think that in the, ideally in the process of sort of figuring out what type of monorig system you want to fish, you do test out for yourself 20 pound, you know, butt section of maxima, 15, 10, and then take other types of leader materials. You know, Cortland makes a good Euronymph leader material that I like. Um, The the OPST, you know, it was one of the original things used for a monorig type system by Joe Humphreys. Um, And there are, there are even more than that. Um, But yes, they, within certainly even my group of fly fishing friends, there are differences between what we all prefer. and some of that even changes given the season, um, probably, you know, whether we are spending the majority of our time nymphing or whether we really, you know, when I, if I was just going to nymph, I probably would tend towards a, a smaller butt, you know, a f- 10 or a 15 pound butt section in general, because I wouldn't necessarily need to retain some of the power that, mm-hmm. that I would want to cast a dry fly or a dry dropper rig. And so there are a lot of subtleties to it. And, and yeah, even based on how crisp your cast is, or even what Roger you using for that matter, you could yeah. absolutely. And so I, w- I encourage anybody who's sort of learning to fish the mono rig. Yeah. Certainly look up what 
you know, Dom Swintowski says about the fishing, the monitoring, look up his leader formula, but go test things for yourself too. And, and find what you like best. And that may be different and that's okay. Yeah. That was my big takeaway. And that's why I was selfishly excited to talk to you about dry fly fishing. Because when I was out there fishing the the mono rig, it yes. was first first time, right? So yeah. I haven't done any experimenting. Yeah. So I'm exactly the person you're talking about with like the, no, the basic. A, a steep, steep learning curve. Yeah, but um blue winged olive hatch, man. You yeah. Know? Yeah. That was super exciting and fun. Yeah. And it, it's snowing and there's it's this is a full up hatch. And I've got I've been fishing drop shot. Again, yeah. I haven't done much drop shot either in my life. Yeah. So now I'm like scratching my head. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I know that I can dry fly fish too. Yes. You know? yep. So what would you, if I had talked to you before I went out mm-hmm. that day, what were what would be some things you would tell me to help me mm-hmm. in that scenario with, with my mono rig, the basic one. And yeah. now it was like dry fly heaven. I mean, it was really, oh, yeah. it was great and it was yeah. fun. And, yeah. but, it was frustrating. I actually took some time to go back out on the on the bank and just like stomp my feet and warm them up <laughs> and practice casting yeah. because I was like, I need to figure something out here. Well, I mean, I'm I want to give you a little bit of praise that you were even able to figure out dry fly fishing on the monorig one of the first times out doing it because that's in the in the world of monorig casting a dry fly is not exactly considered like. 101 you know course it's kind of one of the one of the more advanced skills but <laughs> well, that's why i want to talk um, to you because we talked about yeah. versatility so it's definitely like not off the table sure absolutely it is not off the table at all and in fact it, it is a strength of the monorig in my opinion so dive deeper into that tell me why it's a strength and what what should people be doing i, I it's a strength and i may have mentioned this already but it's a strength in my mind because you are removing or at least partially removing two of the biggest obstacles to presenting a dry fly on a dead drift. And those are the drag of the, the fly line back in your guides, as well as the drag of that fly line on the water. And so in both cases, you are allowing yourself a system where you have less weight pulling on that dry fly. And you have the ability to, in some cases, tight line your dry fly. And I've right. done that in many yeah. situations where I've been within 15 or 20 feet of a, a rising fish. And I mean, you can't beat a dead drift Oh yeah, <laughs> whenever, when all your line or at least most of it is off the water. And a lot of anglers have done that even on small creeks too, with a, with a fly line and just Absolutely. their leader, like you just Absolutely. don't have that much room. So yep. I'm just going to put the fly on the. Absolutely. And, and the challenge they probably would acknowledge and face is that depending on how long their leader is they're trying to pin that fly line against their rod and trying to prevent the side weight to of pulling back on the fly. And, and that's a difficult thing to do with standard fly line, right? Um, oh, I got you. Cause but, it's pulling it back. Yeah. Correct. But I think what you probably noticed if you did try to fish dry flies on the mono rig was that you don't have the, the, the real power, um, stroke, you know, you're not feeling as much weight behind you as you back cast and you're not kind of slinging forward all that weight as you go forward either. The cast takes slightly longer maybe to completely turn over uh, for that reason, but you are also really forced to make quick and kind of, I mean, you can't 
you can't make a slow <laughs> cast. You really have to accelerate from that 10 to two position with hard stops uh, in order to get that mono rig to do its job um, because it doesn't have that inherent weight to it. That's going to do it for you. You know, I think most fly fishermen would probably acknowledge that our modern fly lines are overweighted slightly for our rods. And that's to sort of allow for poor casting technique. And it, it just gives us a little bit more kind of forgiveness, I guess. And yeah, you know, I've, yeah. I've read and heard that there's, a lot of give when people say use this weight on this reel with this weight rod that those are guidelines based on you know the average right right. the average caster but it's not undoable to put different weights on no and but you think like that extra weight in the fly line as well as that extra diameter that you're casting is going to have or be susceptible to more drag and so again you're if you fish a dry fly on the mono rig for long enough to to feel semi-comfortable with it you will really begin to notice some of those benefits and the ability to sort of target picky fish and present a very dead drifted dry fly um to them now i mean wind is probably another good limitation to talk about in that regard because it it does get challenging to cast a mono rig into wind um because again you're not casting with quite as much power and so in a situation like that, I would probably, if I really needed to or wanted to present a dry fly, I would probably put a dry dropper on um, and use the weight of the nymph to sort of allow me some extra power through the wind if I could. That was something that I picked up on right away. Yeah. I was the casting. Like, yeah. whoa, man. Whoa. <laughs> this is not, I got to re, 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 reassess. It's what easy I'm doing to feel here. silly at first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm curious if you had that feeling and how oh, yeah. you kind of thought through it or what, what made you kind of like stick with it, you mm-hmm. know? Cause yeah. like I'm at a point where I'm like, yeah, that, that was, I mean, and I, but I did catch fish, yeah. you know? And I don't know, maybe I don't catch any fish if I'm doing it the other way, because like you said, the fish are picky in these streams and such. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that as you, I mean, I think you were smart to go to the bank and sort of practice your skills a little bit. And I think as, as anyone who plays any, has ever played a sport knows that there are particular skills within each sport that are difficult. And if you, you can muddle along in playing that sport while not getting or getting marginally better in that particular skill. But if you take the time and practice that specific skill on its own, you oftentimes can really make a leap ahead the next time you go out and and actually fish in that style. And so I think that you over time would start to notice quite a bit of improvement in your casting of a dry fly on the monorig just from practice. Yeah. Uh, and I think you probably also notice that transfer over into a better fly cast in general, because I think a good monorig dry fly cast requires good fundamentals of casting in general. I agree. To continue on with the cast, something that I perceived, and mm-hmm. I don't know what your thoughts are, but the weight of the fly, or especially when I was drop shotting, that became part of the cue. And I think yeah. that I would I had been tight lining the whole time nymphing and then this dry fly opportunity arose and you know i didn't have that because like you said you've got the the less weighted line which is the strength but now you're not feeling that in the cast but you have the weighted fly or you have the the weight on the drop shot sure so it's almost like 
is that where it's supposed to be? And you feel that tug. Yeah. And, and I feel like that goes away with right. the dry fly casting. Yeah. And so it was more like paying attention to it. Is that something that you see? And is that something that you consider when you're casting the mono rig in any situation? Should I tie on a heavier fly to help with my casting? Yeah, that's it. I mean, you don't often have the luxury of tying on a heavier dry fly, you know, because most of our dry flies, it's really, in fact, right. the bigger the fly and the more air resistance, and you're actually going to have a harder time pushing it to the target. So I think yeah. that for a lot of our smaller fly hatches, you probably have an easier time casting the monorig. And, and, um, but yes, to your point, I do think that when you're casting dry flies on the monorig, it does become important to sort of get into the rhythm more than necessarily feeling the, you're not feeling quite as dramatic of a weight, uh, you know, in, in your back cast, but you know, a lot of us are fishing these monorigs with very sensitive rods. And so it's not like you can't feel it. It's just cueing your hand and your, your fingers in to feeling it. Cause it's there. That weight is there. It's just subtle, you know, more subtle. And it, it's harder probably in the winter when you're wearing five layers and <laughs> your hands are cold. Um, but I'm not often casting dry flies in the winter on the monorig. No. And, no. I wanna, and to dispel another kind of maybe misconception of of a listener at this point, I don't I don't stick with the monorig for dry flies when it doesn't make sense to do so. So I like I really appreciate the versatility of that system. And there have been many times where I'm fishing a hatch and I fish, you know, nymphs into emergers, into dry flies, sort of naturally and intuitively with a system that allows me to do all three and especially on smaller water. But when I'm, if I'm like going to go out in the evening and fish a two hour stretch of what I know is going to be, you know, yeah, the sulfur hatch or something that I, I just want to go out and fish predominantly dry flies. I'll still take my same monorig setup, but I will, I have fly line behind my monorig and I have it attached with a very short section of 20 pound maxima and then a tippet ring. And I'll just clip it right at that tippet ring, spool it up and then put my my dry fly leader on, which I have a bunch of kind of George Harvey formula dry fly leaders. Um, and, and, and it doesn't take long at all. It, it takes, you know, it, the fear of it takes longer than the actual action of it. Um, and, but once you've done it a few times and you have a rod again, that I think that's why rod selection in this becomes important because as opposed to fishing like an 11 foot two weight, I fish typically either a, 10 foot three weight or a 10 foot four weight that has a fairly fast action. And, and that allows me to fish fly line. Um, and I have fly line that's probably a little bit underweighted, but intentionally so. And, but I can cast easily with that if I want to. And, and, uh, you know, I, I like dry fly fishing with standard fly line as much as anybody, if the situation is right for it. Um, grateful for you to bring that up because <laughs> there was no fly line on my rig. <laughs> I, I didn't know, man. I didn't know. So anybody listening, don't do what yeah. Jason did. Don't put no fly line. Uh, yeah. Because, I think it's nice to have the, your actual, I mean, I use the same reel for everything. You know, I've got my fly yeah. line on it and then my mono is just over top of that. It's a leader. And it's that's what leader. I didn't, I yeah. didn't understand that. And, yes. uh, I think that's an important point. It seems obvious, but no, it's not. I don't think it is. And I, I think didn't it, know yeah. it. I was like, what is, 
And I do think that's it distinguishes a little bit of what we do from maybe the competition scene or or the straight yeah. Euro nymphing scene, right? Which is much more just a it's just a thin line. That's all, you know. Well, that is something I, yeah, I haven't done that, but mm-hmm. if you don't have even a little bit of that weighted butt section, then now an 11 foot rod really is becomes really pretty darn important, right? Yeah. Even more so in the lower weighted and sensitivity of those rods and everything becomes exacerbated. I Absolutely. Think. Absolutely. Anything else? Any other advice? What else would you have told me? Anything else? I think I'd just tell you to be patient with yourself. I mean, I think learning a new system like that is anything but easy. And I think I, my progression in learning how to fish the monorig is continual and, and every time out I learn more and it, but there's also like layers that you sort of learn. And like, I think, you know, maybe six months into fishing the monorig, I sort of felt like, man, I feel like I've, I've gotten to the point that I can control a drift, you know, and, and control a drift well. And then another six months and I was like, man, I feel like my casting is now setting me up for better drifts or, or my transition from my cast into leading those flies or guiding those flies has has improved. And, and yet I continue to sort of upgrade or, or, or learn more in each of those areas. So, you know, success can be found quickly tight lining nymphs. And I think that that's attractive to new fly fishermen or, or people getting into mono rig or tight line uh, nymphing. Yeah. But again, when you're taking on an entire system, a new system that's versatile and that's intended to fish all sorts of different flies, man, that's going to take time. So patience. Patience. I think that you nailed it when you you talk about like the success that you can have in that area. That's something that, you know, if I know I'm going to spend a lot of my time doing that, I want to optimize that to the max extent. And then when you talked about the athlete picking up skill sets, like let's, address those skill sets. Absolutely. Because another thing that I thought, because certainly I felt the, I felt the connection. It felt good. It felt good to fish and know where my fly was and know like it's in the seam and there's no drag and, or little drag, you know, that was really cool. Really cool. Right. I, I I felt like I like this, you know? Um, and I think that for me in that scenario, it was, it was worth it for me, especially coming out there. And I, and I wanted to, I wanted to fish it. I wanted yeah. to try it out. Yeah. And, uh, but the other thing I noticed out there is where I was fishing and I don't know what's re- like in the rest of the state, you sure. know, but it seemed there was a lot of snagginess, a lot of, I don't know if that's a word for a river snaggy, sure. yeah. but yeah. it seemed yeah. snaggy to me. <laughs> There's things and, grabbing at you all over. Yeah. Yeah. And it made me nervous kind of like, um, you know, well, I told you, yeah, I lost my, I broke a rod out there too. Did you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Tragic. So so now I'm fishing somebody else's rod. So I'm super nervous. So probably like, you know, more so than I normally would be, but there was a lot of like, "Ah, I don't know if I want to try and get it into that spot. Is that something that you, Yeah. what are some techniques or mindsets Mm -hmm. that you take to those tactical problems? Uh, I, I notice it and I forget sometimes that myself. And, and if I haven't been out fishing in a month and I go out fishing, I oftentimes spend the first half hour, an hour of pulling my line out of trees and, you know, pulling my line out of the wall, you know? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. It really is, uh, 
and there are just days where you feel more distracted. And I think that happens to you more, but we have a lot of overhanging trees and brush and not only that, but there's a lot of vegetation in the water and a lot of snags in the water itself. And even if you're trying to get a snag undone or you're trying to hook a fish and your fly, your line flies out of the water behind you, you might end up in a tree, you know? So I think yeah. there is a mindfulness that develops as you fish our waters more that is helpful because you sort of in your mind, as you walk, you sort of get used to sort of looking yes. up and around and behind, 100%. right? percent. And yes. you kind of create this little 3d map inside that you're just like, if I'm going to, if I'm going to set, this is the direction I want to set in because if I set up and back, you know, I'm in that hemlock or whatever. Right. Well, like I said, I only fish one stream when I was out there. That's a, that's a Jason thing. When I go someplace, <laughs> I like to, I like to give, I want to learn, a, I want to learn as much I like as I that. can yeah. about one stream cool. versus like bounce around. I, it makes me feel more familiar. It makes yeah. me, yeah. but I feel like I have more success or more, in touch with the river and I get yeah. to even for a little bit, like my own little spots that I like or go back to. Yep. But I totally 100% <laughs> I have fished small streams and I've fished yeah. places where, you know, you got to watch your back cast, man. Yeah. And you, you know, but nothing like that where it was, I really felt like I got to a time, I got to have a habit pattern yeah. of fishing where yeah. I'm always looking. And like you said, hook setting, which is yep. a big thing, right? Yep, absolutely. And I think, you know, as you having now seen firsthand, I mean, I think the water where you fished was a fairly average size waterway for us out here. Um, it wasn't a lot bigger or a lot smaller than most of what we fish. And because of that, I think you can also probably make sense of, um, of why we prize the monorig so much because of its tactical um, approach. And it's, it, you know, I don't, I don't think it, it would be limiting to call it a short range approach. And yet some of its most deadly aspects are in its short range applications. And, and it's really well suited for kind of making however size water you're on smaller in your mind and sort of taking a small section and sort of dissecting it and getting a perfect drift through different sections and really manipulating your drift to get in front of the fish that you want to present to. Um, and so I think we're just used to breaking things down like that. And, and the monorig really suits that well. I, I know that it fishes well throughout the country. And, um, I know our friend Matt Grobe who fishes it, the monorig out West has a, you know, a lot of success doing it on larger water as well. But, but for our, for my purposes here, I really like not having, you know, 20 feet of fly line out on the water while I'm trying to navigate trees and limbs i i'm i like being able to have a a system that that doesn't require me to have quite as much line out at a time yeah let's talk about nymphing it a little bit i wanted sure. to talk about dry flies and we yeah. did that but i mostly drop shot out there and i'm nice. imagining myself just you know tying up these rigs do you have a do you drop shot more or when would you go back and forth between drop shotting and other types of nymphing. Sure. Um, I'll speak for myself on it because I know that there are probably other, other thoughts on it. And I know, I think, I think there's an article on, on trout bin recently about it too, but I, my own move to drop shotting occurs when I feel like 
I want to be able to hug the bottom for some reason. Um, and I also want to minimize hooking up on the bottom. Um, and that could mean that there's a lot of wood in the water. Yeah. It could mean that um, the substrate is different enough in size that I feel like I'm hanging up on larger rocks frequently it, as I'm trying to get my flies into the strike zone. Um, or it could mean that I have some limitations in terms of my ability to control the drift otherwise, such as nighttime uh, nymphing, which, in which case the feel that tactile sense of I'm take, I know I'm taking the bottom and yet I don't really have much ability to see a log or a rock ahead of me that well, at least, um, it would offer an advantage to me in nymphing with that style at night. So those are kind of special scenarios in which I might use it. But I, I mean, to be honest, I probably drop shot nymph 10% of the time that I nymph. Um, when I first tried drop shotting, I stuck with it for a while. Um, and I, and I <laughs> like I me, that's it. what I did. Right? I was yeah, like, all right, that's what I'm doing. This is what you're doing. Um, and, and I think I could see, I understand why, why someone would really enjoy it too, but I wasn't, I don't know. It didn't, I'm, I enjoy a more, maybe a more traditional tight line approach with typically a point fly and yeah. one dropper, um, not, and dropper or tag, I should say tag fly probably. Cause I'm not tying it off of that lead fly. I'm tying it up further on my tippet off of a tag. Um, so yeah. yeah. And I, I do play around with that a fair amount. Like I, I think that depending upon what time of year I'm fishing, I will change the distance between my flies. Um, and some of that just, you know, like in the winter time, as the fish are really hugging the bottom, I want my flies closer together because the advantage of having one fly riding two feet above the strike zone is much less in a scenario in which the fish are really wanting to stay on the bottom. And yeah. so it doesn't do much good for me to ride my, my tag fly uh, 24 inches above my point fly. Um, so, but in the summertime or springtime, as we have hatches and there's emerging flies and the fish are really working the whole water column, I'll oftentimes space my flies out because especially as sort of a data collecting, um, kind of strategy, because if I'm catching most of my flies or my fish on the tag fly two feet above the strike zone, I, I, and I'm also astute to seeing what's going on around me in the water and there's emerging flies and there's hatching flies and they're not taking them on top yet. I might say, Hey, you know, I should be really capitalizing or I should be really targeting this mid column kind of approach here. Like an emerger kind of coming yeah. up like to the surface, but they're not eating at the surface yet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're kind of beginning to position for dry fly takes, but they're just kind of following nymphs up from the bottom or, or the, at least that's the, the aspect of uh, that's sort of turning the fish on right now. So no, that, that makes a lot of sense. How about what goes through your brain or what's your decision-making process like when you're deciding which fly is heavier or do you, is it always yeah. The, yeah. the lead fly is the heaviest? Or? Usually, but again, it, some of it depends upon what I'm trying to do. Um, if I'm trying, I do think, the most elegant solution is to have the heaviest fly be my point fly because then I have my entire uh, tippet in a straight line. 
Um, and, and that has the most sensitivity as far as strike detection in my mind, at least. But if, again, if I'm fishing the winter time, two, there's a few different ways I can try to get my flies. If I'm fishing two flies or three flies close to the bottom. And one of those ways would be to have my heavier fly be on my tag and have that be close to my point fly so that my tag is actually weighting down my entire rig. And then my point fly is sort of riding behind it. But typically, if I'm going to do that, I will actually trail my, as a more of a true dropper, I will trail my point fly with a very small fly. You know, I might, I might have a stone fly nymph with a eight inch section of tippet tied to that hook and then have a midge nymph, you know, or like a, something very small behind it. Why? This might be an obvious answer, but you know, I, I just never grew up learning fly fishing with tying my, my tag fly off. I always tied it off the hook. I mean, I'm always off the lead fly and then down. When did that happen? Was that a no brainer for you or did you have to stumble on that somehow or what makes that better or why do you do it? I mean, I think that I still like if I fish a dry dropper on the mono rig, I, I actually do typically tie that dropper off of the, the hook bend. Some of my friends do that differently and they actually tie, they use the point, what would be the point fly is their dropper and they actually put the dry fly on the tag and I fish that way as well. And that I think takes a little more skill to be honest, to be good at, um, which is maybe sometimes why I avoid it. Um, <laughs> but but it, it's effective and it actually allows you to kind of slip in and out of contact with that dry fly and with the nymph and sort of adjust the depth of the nymph. It's like a, it's a pretty cool way to fish, um, if you get good at it. Um, but, but I think for me with the desire to keep my leader and my tippet all in a line in order to sort of maximize strike detection and my ability to sort of feel um, that drift or, or sense that I'm in control of it. I think that's probably the, the thing that influences me most to either have my heaviest fly be my point fly or to sort of tie in line in a situation like that. But I'm, I know I'm sort of dancing around your question, but I think that I, what's the big advantage of not tying it off the hook? Off the like hook. What, I, I mean, yeah. I think an, maybe a somewhat obvious thing is you're not weed guarding your own hook you know so a fish that's coming up to grab it isn't going to potentially run its mouth into that section of tippet and and you're not gonna you know you might lose a hook set on that so you're not really interfering with the hooking ability of your own fly and so if you can keep your own hooks free of other tippet that there's an advantage to that for sure in my mind um but again like when you're fishing pretty small tippet um you know, I don't know that it makes a huge, huge difference, but, but I do think that it plays a role. What struck me is like, and one of the reasons I, I like it now having done it a little bit is like, I just feel like sometimes when I tie it to the hook, I'm like, well, I hope it's kind of yeah out in, the, in the right spot or it's floating the right way. Right. Right. It just feels like it's kind of like out in the, out in the, somewhere out there floating around. I feel like I know where it's at Yeah, when it's up higher. Yeah. I, I do think that's a good point. Um, I think that 
you also pretty dramatically affect the drift of your point or of whatever fly you're tying this tag to. If you're tying it to the hook bend and you're trying to nymph like that, you are affecting the drift quite a bit. And drag, um, right? Yeah, it's got and drag, drag of the right? yeah. Let's talk about hatches. We'll go back to dry fly fishing. Yeah. If that's yeah, okay. Let's do it. Are there some Pennsylvania dry fly hatches that you really look forward to? I mean, I I feel like sometimes it gets the the nymphing rap yeah, and yeah. My experience was wonderful dry fly fishing. You right, know, I right. That was awesome. Yeah, I think you hit one of my favorite dry fly hatches, which is the blue winged olive. And I think that it's my favorite for many reasons, but primarily because I'm able to kind of, you know, coming out of the winter time where you're often relegated to very uh, underwater approaches and kind of, you know, sort of purifying your dead drift, you all of a sudden have. I think I've referred to it in past as like three-dimensional fishing again. You know, fish are moving up through the column. They're getting excited. They're slashing at flies on the surface, and they sort of attack the blue-winged olive with this like abandon that's sort of infectious because it's. They, I think they're honestly the fish are excited too because they're tired of probably eating slimy nymphs all you know winter. So they're excited to see some dry flies on top. Um, I'm being facetious, but. I, I think that it's just like a great winter breaker hatch, you know, it just kind of gets you out of the doldrums of winter. It's often occurring in colder, you know, weather in March. Um, and so it's not like it's completely warmed up yet, but it just gives you that feeling like springs on its way. And so that's a, that's a lot of fun and it's pretty wild. You got this experience too, but it's pretty wild to be out there in, in a snowstorm casting dry flies. It's pretty fun. <laughs> wondering how you're going to drive your yeah. white Ford Mustang. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just hopefully it'll stop. I'm just going to keep fishing till it stops snowing. Yeah. Cause I can't get home. Any, anything else? Well, I like, I mean, I think the next one that I probably highlight is I like our sulfur hatch a lot. Um, our sulfur hatch is pretty abundant. There's a lot of sulfur nymphs and a lot of our streams have a hatch. And so it's a great one that gets the fish excited. Um, I know we're, Pennsylvania is known for for the Granum caddis hatch and for green drakes and some special kind of hatches like that. But I think, you know, I like some of the more long lasting and less kind of boutique hatches. And maybe it's a little bit of a bias against the just influx of anglers we get for some of the more um, kind of flashy named hatches like the green drakes. But there's great fishing to be had all through the spring with the different hatches. And, and sometimes yeah. I avoid some of the more popular hatches just because I don't really feel like fishing around others as much. All right. If you could only fish two days out there, which two days would you fish? How would you fish them? Hmm, that's a good question. So I'd probably fish like, um, probably like a March 31st or maybe a March 21st, somewhere in there and hit the blue winged olives. And I would fish with the mono rig and I would nymph until they started working them on top. And then I'd switch over to a dry fly, probably a size 18 or a size 20 comparadon kind of style uh, dry fly is one of my favorite for the, for the blue winged olives. And, um, the second day I'd probably pick late May, maybe mid May. Yeah. Let's go mid May, May 15th, maybe something like that as the sulfurs are really in good, getting into gear. I'd fish, um, 
man, that's a hatch. I just love fishing dry flies for. And I would, I like I'll fish dry dropper maybe early in the hatch too, but we get a great spinner fall in the evening, late evening with the sulfurs as well. And so, um, fishing a tandem of dry flies can be effective at times just to keep some visibility, um, because those spinners can be tough to pick out as the lights fading. Um, that, yeah, those two, I, I just, yeah, that'd be really some good days. And I, I pick those days, you know, they're in the midst of hatches and it's not because <laughs> I just love dry fly fishing, but I know. Because, right. Like, those days offer you the ability to fish. You like you could fish streamers in the morning, nymphs all day, and then end with dry flies. That's just yeah. a special day, you know. And yes. like you could, if you're a wet fly guy, you could throw wet flies, you know, as the hatch is getting going too. But right. it's just cool to be able to fish so many different styles in the same in the same day, and then really rewarding doing it on a on a mono rig system that lets you do it all. Yeah, that is special. Do you have a most memorable fish or a special fish that strikes you? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I've, I caught, uh, a two foot fish a couple years ago, um, on a, on a bright sunny day uh, at like 11, 10 or 11 AM. Like the, it was like the conditions you're not supposed to catch a special fish in. So I called him stormy cause I don't know if you've heard our tradition, but we name our two foot fish. Um, because it was just sort of ironic. Like it was just not big fish weather. Um, and and it was, it was a special fish for that reason that I wasn't expecting it. Um, I was with a good buddy, um, that I'd been in the air force with, he's a doc in the air force that, um, he actually lives out in Utah as well. So out in your neck of the woods now, Yeah, man. um, the beehive state. Yeah, right. Exactly. So yeah, he got to be there to share it with me. He's kind of an, uh, was a beginner fly fisherman at the time and sort of got to share that experience with me. Um, and yeah, it was just a special day and I kind of, and we, I think we went to a Penn state whiteout that evening. Um, so it like kind of doubled up on the day, kind of got, it was a special day all around. Oh, it does sound awesome. If I'm going to come out there and fish with you yeah. again, yeah. if I'm still invited, yeah, if, right. uh, <laughs> if, uh, if I must come out there and fish with you, are there a couple of flies that you would recommend that I tie, uh, being a beginner to intermediate tire yeah i think it's hard to beat a pheasant tail um and and i think all my friends tie them a little differently um i use turkey tail for my pheasant tails because i have a lot of turkey tail because i've shot a few turkeys (laughs) so i'm trying to use it for things and i think they fish just as well as the pheasant tail um but uh, and and so i like i like a little hot spot on my pheasant tail um, whether that's orange or red or something like that, I've done chartreuse as well. And I think that works well at certain times of year. Um, and so I, I think a good pheasant tail is a great fly. I'd typically use that as a tag fly, not a, not, not a point fly. And, it, you know, waltz worm, I think is probably, I use a sexy waltz as my point fly a lot. Um, you can tie it in a lot of different sizes, you can tie it on a jig hook if you want to. It has a nice kind of full body to it. So it kind of holds the bottom nicely without holding up. It just is a great kind of general pattern that, that imitates a lot of different things. Everything from a, a sow bug to crest bug all the way to a small mayfly nymph. So, and I'll tie those anywhere from size probably 16 to 12 or even 10 at times. 
Um, if I'm really, I have a few kind of like hug the bottom flies. Depends, depends on the weather. If we're, if our flows are up, then I'll, I'll weight it down a little bit, but yeah, I think it's hard to beat, hard to beat the versatility of, of those flies. I'm uh, picking up on a theme of your <laughs> appreciation for versatility. Yeah, absolutely. And and the days that you fish and the flies that you use and the yep. rig that you fish. Right, yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably what we all will resort to when we have limited time on the water, right? We, we want to maximize our experiences. Yeah, for sure I do. Last question on Pennsylvania. What's something that you learned recently fishing out there? I think that I've been learning to read water better this year, um, and cast less, but, but what casts I do make kind of plan them out a little bit and turn them into more effective drifts. So I think that again, like in maybe trying to maximize my time on the water, I can tend to hurry. And in my hurry, I can tend to cast too much and have a lot of mediocre or kind of moderate level drifts. Um, and what I've been trying to do this year is slow myself down a little bit, set my feet, plan my cast and, and make drifts count and, and really pick out locations and spots where I feel like, all right, this is a pretty likely holding spot, or this is a seam that I feel pretty good about. And I feel like, and what it's resulted in is that I'm catching more fish or at least as many fish on less cast. So my, my conversion rates better, uh, which is a satisfying thing and, and sort of leads me to feeling a little bit more effective as an angler, um, on the water and, and a little less tired from not casting maybe quite as much, but yeah, I think it's, it's just something that it's like laziness almost. You can get into just like, you just start slapping the water, right? You just, um, and I'll, and if you can slow down a little bit, that's what I'm, as I'm trying to do, not only is it more enjoyable, but you, you become a more effective angler. Yeah. Anything else that you want to bring up about, uh, fly fishing, dry fly fishing, or what you enjoy about Pennsylvania? Yeah. I don't, I mean, I love, I do love that we have the seasons here. I love, and there are aspects of fly fishing, all of our seasons that I love, and we are blessed to have water and again, back to the fact that, you know, geologically we're sort of blessed in, in our state to have a lot of spring fed, um, waterways and those waterways, just like kind of a tailwater, they sustain fish and healthy fish all year round because of the consistent water temperatures. Um, and so I, I love fishing in the winter for the, uh, for the solitude and for the lack of other anglers on the water, um, and yet I love fishing the spring and summer for just the activity in the fish and their high metabolic rate and fall has its own special sort of, um, styles of fishing that I'm, I enjoy probably. So it's just, yeah, I think I really enjoy our seasons here and, and what that offers as far as the versatility in fly fishing. Versatility. That's going to be, yeah, the, man, that's, that's going to be. It's going to be on the title of the show. <laughs> it can't not be now. <laughs> How could people find out more about you or anything that you have going on that you want to share with the fly fishing community? Sure. Um, I'd say people should check out the Trout Bitten podcast. That's probably the most out there I am. I keep a pretty low profile in general. I am on Instagram, I think, under Trevor Sherrick Smith. And 
that, you know, that's another way to sort of check it out. I have a mixture of family and fishing posts on there, but I, I have the luxury of fly fishing as a, as sort of a hobby. And I join a lot of friends who fly fish as a hobby, but also who have a, a hand or foot in the industry. And, and I, I get to benefit greatly from their knowledge and from their resources and from even just the kind of the opportunities that I guess that affords us. But, but I love my role in, in what it is and it lets it be pretty simple. So I don't crave the limelight in any way. <laughs> I like, I like doing my thing and I like, um, sort of maintaining my low profile. Um, I'm a small town family doctor and I like keeping it that way. <laughs> uh, sounds good, man. Well, uh, yeah, it's a great podcast. Trout Bitten's a great resource. Uh, I've learned a ton, had a ton of fun. Yeah. So, um, yeah, people can check you out and, uh, I've listened to some of the episodes, uh, as well. Yeah. And you always have awesome, insightful things to say, just like today, man. So I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> appreciate that. I, uh, you know, I save up good things to say once in a while, but I, yeah, right. it's fun. It's yeah, <laughs> I we I know all of us enjoy your podcast as well. It's kind of fun to have friends across the the country that are doing similar things, and uh, it makes for a neat camaraderie. And I yeah. love that you've been out here now. And I know we all need to get out to Utah to fish. <laughs> <laughs> You're most welcome. You're most welcome, man. That'd be great. Uh, all right, last question. You ready? Sure. Yep. If you could go back to when you first started fly fishing yes. uh, and you're out there with Jack and you yes. could tell yourself one thing or two things, if you could tell yourself two things, one more philosophical and mm -hmm. one more tactical, what would you tell yourself to help you progress as a fly fisher? Hmm. That's a great question. So the philosophical side of it, you know, I think one thing that I would tell myself is to, to listen to Jack and and what he had to teach me from that side of things. He was such a enthusiast about the outdoors and a, and a naturalist and loved uh, protecting the resource that he so enjoyed. And, um, and I think that because of his enjoyment uh, that spanned all the way from, you know, protecting the resource to catching the fish to uh, learning as much as he could about the entomology of, of fly fishing, he enjoyed it for all the aspects that are available uh, to enjoy it and, and really maximized his enjoyment. And he, in doing that, he just maintained this people centeredness around it. That is just, that was a bit remarkable to me. Um, he kind of tragically passed away uh, a couple years ago, right at the beginning of COVID. Um, and right before I actually was about to fly out and fish with him again and sort of oh, try to re recreate our, our 16 age 16 trip. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Man. Thanks. It was, um, obviously for, for his wife and his family and for us as his extended family, it was a really hard blow because it just was so unexpected. Um, but the resounding, kind of message that came away from everyone who talked about Jack was just how much he invested in relationships and people that he fished with people that he knew in his personal life or even professionally all felt like he was present in those relationships and that he saw them and that he cared about them and that he was um, kind of unique in doing that. And I think that's just such a valuable skill to have fly fishing sort of forces being present in some regards and 
we're in a you asked philosophical. So here we, so I'm, I'm going off on this. I'm sorry. I love it. We're in a day and age where we're increasingly bombarded by stimuli all around us, right? We're increasingly on screens. We're electronics and our phones. I, I don't know the number of touches we have on our phones a day, but it's something un, obscene. And because of that, I think it does really challenge our ability to be present in moments and in relationships. And it's really easy to dissociate. And so fly fishing, bringing this full circle for Jack was an outworking of his natural ability to be present in relationship and in moments and even in his experience on the water. And I think that I would definitely tell myself at 16, like value that above all else, you know, value that ability to be present and to be in, in both in fishing, but also in the lives of the people that you love. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if we want to follow that up with yeah. that. Like, I don't even remember the other question. Don't forget to hook set. Or <laughs> yeah, right. Don't, don't forget that. Hook sets are free. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, man. And uh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Story and your history and all your knowledge that you uh, share with me and everybody else today. And I really enjoyed talking with you, man. Likewise. Likewise. Yeah, I love everything you're doing. So thanks a lot for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. You can learn more about some of the topics we discussed in today's episode show notes. For more fly fishing ideas, stories, and artwork, check out my blog and online gallery at wadeoutthere.com. If you want to make Wade Out There a part of your own fly fishing journey, please subscribe and share. Until next time, wait out there.